Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Today we return to Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center, and our guest is the Reverend Frank Macht, the director of the chaplaincy. Frank is a minister in the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, although he's originally from Germany. Together we reflect on his journey, as he refers to it, and the experiences he has had as he served and trained all over the United States, from Berkeley, California, to Atlanta, Georgia, to Albuquerque, New Mexico, to Nome, Alaska, and finally to Lebanon, New Hampshire. Frank was first called to the ministry as a hospital chaplain through a training program known as Clinical Pastoral Education. His interest in this specialized form of ministry led him to become a clinical pastoral education supervisor, which allows him to supervise the clinical training of other chaplains. In this podcast, we discuss the training a hospital chaplain goes through, the role of the hospital chaplain, and specifically the role of the chaplaincy at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. I really enjoyed this interview because of Frank's unique story and how he enhanced my own understanding of the role of the hospital chaplain and chaplaincy training. I think it's important for healthcare leaders to understand what a well-trained chaplain can bring to the care team, and I think Frank does an excellent job of explaining that role. Frank and I had a lengthy conversation about his career and the role of the chaplaincy. To produce this episode, unfortunately, I had to edit out much of the conversation that was of interest to me, so I am posting two versions of the interview, the edited version and the full-length interview. You are listening to the full-length version of the interview. If you would like to listen to the edited version, please check our website, healthleaderforge.org, for the link. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Don't forget to leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you may be accessing this recording. Also, you can find us on Twitter at the handle at HealthLF. That's at H-E-A-L-T-H-L-F. Thanks for listening. And here is the Reverend Frank Macht. Welcome to The Forge, Frank. Thanks for having me today, Mark. It's exciting to see you again. I look forward to our conversation. So listeners may notice a little bit of a different accent today. We're not going to have the usual New Hampshire accent. You're originally from Germany, and you studied theology at the universities of Frankfurt and Munster before coming to the United States. When did you know you wanted to be a minister, and what inspired you to follow that path? Well, I actually started uh, studying theology before I knew I wanted to be a minister. That's an often asked question, especially if you're younger and your friends here in your volleyball club, you know, asking you, why would you want to study theology? Are you going to be a pastor in a church? And I had uh, gotten curious about asking some of the bigger questions in life. After I uh, finished high school and I ended up doing a civil service, you know, instead of military service at the time, that was a choice as a conscientious objector, and I ended up do, uh, serving in a church setting. Um, not an environment that I was particularly familiar with or had grown up with. And during that time, and also through a re- significant relationship, you know, I had more questions, you know, about uh, maybe God and the world, so to speak, and to everybody's, and maybe even my own surprise, I told folks after I was done with this um, uh, internship or civil service, you know, to study theology. Not necessarily with the goal of being a, a minister or pastor. And then people are asking, well, if you're studying this, you know, what are you going to do with it? Uh-huh. 
So it has kind of been an evolving process, and I think we'll get to that as I've seen your questions a little bit later. Once I get some clinical experiences actually here in the U.S., seeing at the bedside with people that sense of call, I could be a minister rather than a theologian or a teacher or maybe pursuing a Ph.D. Okay. kind of emerged. So it's okay. been a um, gradual process, and maybe it's still growing on me. Okay. okay. So, you, so you did undergraduate work uh, while you were at? At, at Frankfurt and Munster, was this a is there a, a U.S. equivalent of graduate school in there? Or I believe that's changed at the time, which is now like 25, 30 years back when I started out. We did not have undergraduate studies. So actually, oh. this morning, you know, as I was sitting in a class with one of your colleagues, this was the first college class I ever took. You know, <laughs> in Germany at that time, you would graduate with your Abitur from the high school, which not everybody finishes. You know, there's a three-tier system early on in the school system. And then you end up straight at the university, either studying medicine or law or business or theology. So there is not this kind of British model or American model of a four-year undergraduate. I understand now, um, in the meantime, that's changed in the last 10, 15 years. I think there's a standardization as the world is getting smaller with international degrees. So now I'm surprised when I go back to Germany and I see younger folks and they are talking about getting bachelor's and master's degrees. Okay. I don't think that's the case in theology, but again, when I started out, it was a long seven, eight year um, years of study, but just with this specialty. And when I came to the U.S., I was able to transfer credits. So um, I actually got a master's degree or two in this country without having officially a bachelor's degree, which is kind of a That, that is interesting. Okay, so, so what brought <coughs> you... But I put the years in and the studies that okay. I want to claim. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so what brought you to the Pacific School of Religion in Berkeley, which is in fact where you got your master's of divinity and a, and a master's of arts, you said? And were you ordained before you came? I was not ordained at the time. So I was um, like 25 years old and um, in Germany and had, had studied theology for five years. And I um, felt kind of restless at the time, you know, um, kind of a little bit um, on the road kind of feel. I wanted to spend a year in a foreign country. Um, maybe learn a different language or improve on English as uh, I ended up in the U.S., but basically get a little bit out of the culture and kind of the beaten path, which is something fairly difficult for Germans to do, to do because once you're on that track, you know, you stay on the track. Mm -hmm. Versus here in America, I've really appreciated, you know, that people have second careers. You know, you can change um, according to your passions and start over again. This culture is uh, much more receptive to that. But for me at the time, I uh, wanted to spend a year in a foreign country, and when I studied in Münster, I met a professor who was a colleague of one of my professors there who came from Berkeley, California, this particular school. He um, taught um, business ethics, kind of a subspecialty in ethics, you know, in, in a seminary, and I was very interested in that topic, ethics in um, connection with the real world in this sense with business settings. So here I saw my opportunity not just to go anywhere for a year in a foreign country, but after he gave a couple lectures, I asked him, you know, what would it take for me to study with you? And it was a life-changing event, which I didn't know at the time. He got a little business card out of the admissions office of Pacific School of Religion in Berkeley, California. So I didn't know much about Berkeley, but I looked on the map and it was Northern California and San Francisco and that looked great. But I had a person I connected with. Mm -hmm. It was a personal relationship and it, I also had a purpose. You know, I wanted to study particularly that topic with him. And 
passed so, some English test, uh, test of English as a foreign language, and ultimately a year later I came to Berkeley with the intent to be there for a year, which then turned into and four you were years. And you were coming there to study the business ethics aspects. <coughs> <of the laughs> and, and other theological courses, but okay. I, I was especially drawn to him. I okay. had, all done, had done already a lot of the so-called undergraduate work and basic um, New Testament, Old Testament, biblical studies in Germany, so I had a lot of freedom because of these, the transfer of credit to kind of specialize. Okay. So I became a teaching assistant in his ethics course, Intro into Ethics, I believe, and worked closely with him. Charles McCoy, I should mention his name. Okay, good. He's also passed away, unfortunately, um, in the meantime. Um, but he became a mentor, and um, what I really appreciated is the close relationship you could have with a professor here in this country, certainly from my experience, versus in so Germany. That different? was much harder with at that time, you know, many more students at the larger university setting and and a little bit more. The Herr Professor, you know, was kind of typically in his or her own sphere, you know, versus that close side-by-side -side mentoring relationship or being on a first-name basis, which is so American compared to a differential culture in Europe. Sure. That was... Um, very moving experience and probably contributed to me then also wanting to stay, you know, a second year, the language was getting better, there were more questions, you know, than answers and ultimately I finished, finished my degrees in this country. So while you were in Germany, were you on, a, you were studying theology, were you on a track that you were pretty sure you were going to be ordained at some point or had you not made that decision? I hadn't made that decision really at this point. Before I mean, Before you came to Berkeley? That's true. You know, I don't think ever anybody had asked me that with respect to ordination. That came much later after I took a semester off while in Berkeley. Okay and entered what we'll get into has become kind of a life's calling clinical pastoral education. So I crossed the bay from Berkeley to Stanford, California, um, to the hospital there okay. for about five months and, and got some training and worked with people in a clinical setting. And that really then um, kind of affirmed me in my sense of wanting to work closer with people and not just pursue a PhD in the academic setting, but um, really serve the church and kind of uh, people more directly. And ultimately that led to the decision then to become ordained and affiliate with a, with a denomination, with a church, you know, in the, in the U.S. Okay. Once it became clear that at least I wanted to um, finish my studies here and get ordained in this country. Interesting. So going back to the Pacific School of Religion, you, you had that connection with that professor. Mm -hmm. You decided to come over here. It was only going to be for a year in the United States and I'm going to go right. back. And uh, so, so the, I looked on the, on the uh, Pacific School of Religion website and the school describes itself as living a radically welcoming gospel. Can you talk about what that means? Yes, well, I, I, as I said, I did not come particularly to pick this school out of many other um, seminaries. I was not that informed about all the options in the country. The connection was made through one professor. But I did find, you know, coming from a university setting in, um, in Germany to be, first of all, in a seminary that is more of a community. People, many reside there, live with each other. It's almost, a, I would say, a faith community in the sense uh, that there are worship opportunities. It's, it's more about living together kind of with each other while we're studying rather than a very academic uh, university setting in Germany. So that was very appealing. But a Pacific School of Religion for um, the longest time, I would say, has a tradition of being very progressive on social issues, 
probably going back to being in Berkeley on the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s, various liberation movements that also um, faith group leaders and theologians were part of. And actually my mentor, Charles McCoy, remember him um, telling stories, you know, he was of that generation as a young man and as a young pastor to be part of a civil rights movement. And um, he brought that into his teaching, you know, certainly with an emphasis of, on ethics, maybe even corporate culture and wanting to change society and uh, transform society to put your faith into practice, so to speak. Um, I think as things have evolved, I think Pacific School of Religion at the time already was very inclusive, of course, of women in leadership roles, which the church, like other institutions in society, had str struggled with. Ethnic diversity, um, being on the Pacific Rim, bringing people from, you know, other Asian countries in particular, you know, into leadership roles. Uh, issues of diversity, especially with uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, are they're very involved and, and supportive and I think have a center for GLD beast studies, you know, that has evolved over the years. Um, has an affiliation with the metropolitan community churches who have their faith group leaders, pastors, you know, often trained at that seminary, which uh, has its roots in being interdenominational, which was also very appealing for me. Coming from okay. Germany, you're either Catholic or Protestant. Now you're in the Bay Area in California, and even with the various Christian denominations, various religions, Center for Buddhist Studies, the whole diversity piece of being in the Bay Area was very impressive for me as a fairly young guy from somewhat homogeneous um, culture. Okay. And that was one of the things that, that struck me about, about the Pacific School was, at least today, they list 17 denominations of, of incoming students. And that just kind of surprised me because I, I'm imagining training. How, do, how does one train 17 different denominations in one school for preparation for potentially for ordination, well, or is that not the main focus? It may not be the main focus, of course, if people are preparing for leadership as pastors, clergy, typically in their denomination, there's some classes that cater particularly to that. So for example, I happen to be in my background and then also affiliated with the Lutheran Church, I would spend a year or several classes at Pacific Lutheran Theological Seminary, which is part of a consortium of denominational schools, seminaries in California, and would get take classes like Introduction to Lutheranism in America uh, with that particular um, context or policies and uh, polity, you know, of your denomination. And I think that's true for the Methodist Church or United Church of Christ and others. But overall, if uh, theological studies classically focus, let's say, in the Christian tradition on the Old and the New Testament, on scripture, on church history, on the matters of faith, matters of morality and ethics, and then practical theology, which may include um, preaching, pastoral care, and other subspecialties. So um, that certainly can be taught, and even better taught, you know, with people from various traditions. And add some richness to it. It adds to richness to it, and that's the case now, you know, I think we'll get to that. I've become yeah. an educator myself, right. doing clinical training, and we have students certainly of various faith backgrounds who uh, take part in that training. And now that you ask of it, and I get to think about it, maybe um, being in such a diverse environment, that, that appreciation for that diversity carried over into my calling to 
be a, an educator in a clinical setting that brings people together from a variety of settings. I enjoyed, you know, being pastor of a Lutheran church, you know, yet also as a, as a chaplain, you know, one of the delights is, you know, I get to work with people of various walks of life, different faith backgrounds, no uh, spiritual but not religious, and a variety of opinions. And I find that um, enriching and, and engaging in a particular way. So you, I had had the impression that you had finished your degree and then gone to Stanford, but what you actually said a moment ago is you took a break. Right. Uh, so you'd come to Pacific School to study with your mentor. You were particularly interested in ethics and some of the other things that he had, he had mm -hmm. introduced you to. Why the break? Why the decision to go to Stanford? Well... Uh, like eight and maybe nine years of this of theological studies now in the classroom and still having that question that you actually asked first is about ordination and what are you going to do with this degree it was kind of looming and I said after all that theory I need to have some practical experience and it wasn't the time yet for an internship in the church that came later that's a denominational requirement which actually got me up to Alaska for the first time but I learned about this thing other students talked about called CPE, Clinical Pastoral Education, where there's a structured program where students would uh, be in the clinical setting, typically in hospitals, and with mentorship and with, within a group process would experience themselves, you know, providing pastoral care to primarily people who are in the hospital, patients, families, also staff. So for me to get out of the classroom, take a break, experience myself, you know, in a ministry role was was necessary at the time and then ultimately very formative. Okay. So uh, I could say now that maybe it was providential, you know, that I saw that announcement. Somebody had dropped out of a residency. And for practical reasons, that also meant that person, you know, uh, was giving up a kind of a position that had a stipend associated with it. I had to think about financing myself in my second, third, fourth year in this country. So taking a semester off, at least having a small stipend for a few months, leaving the ivory tower, that was really the benefit of, of that decision. So you went to Stanford for six months and you had your first mm -hmm. exposure to, to CPE. Mm -hmm. let's, let's talk a little bit about kind of the general uh, process and, of training and, and CPE training. What level of training? So there's different levels of CPE. What level did you pursue up through while you were at Stanford? Can you maybe talk a little bit about those Yeah, at, at that time it was um, basically um, called basic and advanced. Nowadays we call it level one and level two, the primary uh, levels for CPE. So you could say one is a beginner's level, you know, introduction to the clinical method of learning. Um, now, if I have students, and at that time, this was my first time being in a healthcare setting in a hospital. So you learn a lot about just functioning in the hospital and finding your way around the different disciplines. So it's an acculturation process that is fairly basic and needs some attention now with new students, and which I needed to learn. Kind of sense of professionalism, you'll dress differently, you know, than being in seminary, and you're expected, you know, make a difference in people's lives by being responsible, visiting with patients, you know, in assigned areas. So that is, um, and, and then being in a clinical setting, basically being sent out there, you know, uh, with a short orientation period, certainly by the end of the first week, you were out there knocking on people's doors, so to speak, and trying to begin to have meaningful relationships and trying to assess what may be helpful for people. So really the clinical aspect, you know, the, the 
not trial by fire, but by uh, experimentation, you know, maybe some errors or questions unanswered that you would come back to your supervisor in your peer group for reflection, which is the other big part, okay. action and reflection, and then, you know, you learn something, more action, more reflection. This constant back, of, back and forth of doing things, you know, and reflecting on what you did and trying to learn what was helpful, what was less helpful. So quick orientation, you found out, okay, this is a doctor, that's a nurse, you know, and then you're out there. And what was it they were telling you to go out there and do? So give, can you give an example of, so you're told, what, you give a list of patients who are in the hospital and go visit these people? And Yes, and right. It's not, not necessarily that we tell, I mean, now I'm in the role of training uh -huh. people, okay. you know, tell folks what to do. But essentially to begin initiating helping relationships. So you will be assigned to a clinical area, let's say on cardiology or oncology, and you're asked to visit people and to establish a relationship that's um, caring and trusting and kind of begin to listen what maybe the patient's experience is like and then to respond, you know, in... Uh, in a meaningful way so that folks may be comforted, may be able to explore, you know, what their experience is to create a reflective environment, to maybe respond to particular requests since you, I remember, you know, they had this name badge there on the first day that said chaplain, you know, and I wasn't an ordained minister and now I had the authority and the responsibility that comes with a name with a name tag and with a badge and yeah. expectations that come with it but that's part of the clinical learning you know to step into the role of a minister and then see how do people relate to you what do they expect do they have preconceived notions just say oh you may think oh a chaplain's at my door well they probably want to pray with me you know oh oh are they going to preach to me, you know? Try I've gone to, to church and they're trying to convert me. So those are kind of the pitfalls of, of chaplaincy. Um, as we're entering a room, you know, you don't know what the background is. You haven't read anything about the patient. Maybe you know a diagnosis of what brought them to the hospital. But a lot of it is by trial and error to establish relationships and um, kind of offer the journey with somebody while they're displaced, to say the least, maybe in great distress, maybe hopeful about, you know, a surgery or a procedure that they have elected and provide uh, a meaningful companionship that may lead to exploring particular spiritual issues or may draw upon religious practices depending on on the patient and the family and their needs. And if you're not of the same denomination or religion or the patient is not religious at all, what, how does that affect the, 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 the relationship? And the it, it doesn't really matter, you know, because um, typically chaplains are assigned to these clinical areas, let's say a particular medical specialties unit, and are not assigned by denomination. There are variations in different chaplaincy departments. Sometimes, it's often the Catholic population is fairly large. It is sometimes helpful to have a Catholic priest on staff who attends to the particular sacramental needs of Catholic patients. So some hospitals may organize uh, their spiritual care department along faith or denominational lines. The centers where I trained and where I now work at uh, Dartmouth-Hitchcock does not do that. So if somebody requests a particular faith group, you know, I want to see a Buddhist chaplain, we don't have one on staff, we may find somebody in the community. 
if somebody wants a sacrament of the sick. We do have a Catholic priest on staff. I cannot provide that. I may have a listening presence, but certainly I would get one of the fathers there to provide that ritual that he is authorized to do. What triggers a visit from a chaplain? Is it a standing thing, or is it a serious enough illness, or a request, or...? Very helpful question that I think each chaplaincy um, department has to address, and they may um, be able, depending on their resources, address it um, differently. I would say that we, as probably most chaplaincy or spiritual care, pastoral care departments, as they're often called, are not staffed in a way that every patient would have a visit from a trained chaplain who does an assessment of the spiritual needs. That would be a wonderful goal and something maybe to work to. However, that's typically unrealistic. So we try to assess with the help of other clinical staff where the top priorities are. So if a chaplain, let's say, has a list of patients in their assigned area, sometimes the diagnosis, sometimes the religious preference, sometimes the age or the length of stay may give us some information about a, a certain urgency. It's fairly limited. What rises to the top is certainly any kind of specific referral, a self-referral, a request from a patient, a family member, letting other staff or us directly know uh, we are here, this has happened, you know, and we would like to have a visit from a chaplain. Then we respond immediately. We're on call 24-7. Most hospitals have that service. Particular situations like any major crisis, you know, usually associated with death and dying, with a new diagnosis um, will, may trigger, you know, for the staff to think, oh, we want to have the chaplain here, this doesn't look good in the emergency department, or there is a cold flu, everybody's working, oh, it's nice to have the chaplain here in the background to maybe support family member while the code team, you know, is doing what they do to save a life. Is that so, a standing order if you hear code blue? Does that trigger the, one of your staff the, to go respond? Correct. We do. We are part of the paging the group of mm-hmm. um, interdisciplinary team members who are automatically paged when there is a code blue. Oh, interesting. Okay. That does not always, you know, lead to some meaningful engagement in ministry because mm-hmm. obviously the patient is not going to be conversant. However, Often with family members right there, you can imagine how distressing that is. Now suddenly, you know, you thought your spouse or your uh, your parent was getting um, better. Now they are in cardiac arrest. You're waiting there. The chaplain may provide, you know, a comforting presence. Sometimes um, could be a link, a little bit of communication, you know, going in there, say, oh, we got anxious family members there. Are there any news already? You know, I may go back and say, yes, they're all working very hard, you know, with your family member. The doctor said, you know, he would maybe within 15, 20 minutes come and give an update on what's happening or what needs to happen. So sometimes we're a valued link, you know, on the team in these acute crisis situations in the ED or let's say a code situation. So uh, you were at Stanford and you were starting to do this and learn how to do this effectively. Right. Um, And you were not yet ordained. How did that, how did that um, affect your, your interactions with patients? When pa- did, did patients kind of ask you, okay, you know, what are, what are you? Um, and did you, how did you explain, well, I'm a student or, um, you know? You're learning how to explain what a chaplain does. I think uh-huh. now even more so than 25 years ago, more and more people may not be familiar with the word. 
Uh, when they yeah, hear Chaplin, they think of Charlie Chaplin and often spell <laughs> it that way. That comes up even in clinical documentation here and there. Um, for some people, it means um, priest or pastor because their reference point is church or synagogue or the rabbi, you know, chaplain. It's a, uh, somebody representing a faith tradition with a particular interest. But also people who have had encounters with healthcare, they maybe have a good grasp that a chaplain essentially is there to accompany people during a crisis time or even with um, chronic illness to offer emotional, offer a spiritual support. Often people will think, oh yeah, chaplain is somebody I can pour my heart out, um, somebody who will listen, somebody who is maybe uh, less rushed to have to do things, you know. Physician time with patients gets shorter and shorter, even nurses are busier and busier, also with documentation. So they say, oh yeah, I need somebody to talk to what's going on with me on the inside. And that gets pretty close, pretty quick to what a chaplain does. Okay. And when a chaplain or me as an intern, you know, way back down there in Stanford um, kind of says, oh, I'm here, you know, to journey with you or I'm wondering what's going on with you as you're dealing with this new situation. And often that eases, you know, patients or family members fears about, oh, he's not here to preach to me. This is not about me going to church or, you know, morality and some of the things that so often religion has and still is about. Yeah. You use the phrase journey. Is that a, is that a, is that a phrase that is commonly used in the in the I think it's commonly service? used. I, I like what do you it. Mean by that? Well, people are on a journey, you know, um, so to speak, in life. And when often, when there is a healthcare crisis, either an acute event or sometimes dealing with chronic issues that kind of pop up here and there, it usually puts a journey to a halt or there may be um, some changes on that journey. Those are opportune times for reflection, and often people will ask some of the bigger questions in life that you and I and others don't attend to as much when we're busy with our jobs and managing children and families and all of that, but sure enough, you had an accident and I could have died, or now I have this illness, or we're sitting here waiting for the results of something showed up on a scan, um, it puts a halt on the journey, but then as um, people are navigating maybe the new normal, yes, I will have to go to rehab, I'm losing a function of a particular aspect of my life, um, I down the road may have to go on in life on this journey without um, my child, you know, my parents, uh, a spouse. Those are, those are opportunities, what I would say, for me, meaning-making and uh, renegotiating um, kind of life's journey and what is important. That's part of the reason, I think, why um, chaplaincy departments and also this training method, you know, um, ended up being affiliated with medical centers because of the crisis nature of hospitals, you know. Um, the need is there and the receptivity is typically there. Uh, as well as the opportunity to reflect with somebody who um, also has a certain training and background to at least engage, you know, the bigger questions in life. Right. Not necessarily to have the answers to right. why did that happen to me and why now and this is not fair and there's so much suffering in the world and yeah. um, certainly those things that come up, you know, if you're facing, you know, matters of life and death. So you were in the tr your training and you mentioned it used to be called basic and advanced. It's now level one and level two. What level did you get to during that six-month period? 
Is, is there a clear delineation? Uh, yes, now you're... Not necessarily a clear deline delineation. At that time, probably I stayed at that basic level. And later on, after doing an internship in a church, I kind of re-entered CPE in okay. New Mexico and Albuquerque. Then you may move to the next level, which uh, basically is is a continuation of asking more questions and developing skills to continuously engage these matters of life and death or decision making at a continuous basis. You know, you, you move beyond just basic listening skills, you know, mirroring techniques that help somebody to unburden themselves, but you learn about how to maybe ask more poignant questions or um, get to aspects of guiding, you know, assisting with decision making. Um, you learn how to self-supervise your own work, you know, in the beginning you depend on others to give you feedback. If you're at the level two now or at an advanced level, like any practitioner, you're able to evaluate your own work. We do this in CP primarily with a verbatim um, format where um, students, like I did, and now I supervise the work of students, write up pastoral encounter situations with patients, families, sometimes staff. Mm -hmm. um, that's called a verbatim. It's called a verbatim because at the core really is uh, in verbatim the encounter, you know, the patient said this, this is how I responded, and this happened. And um, the student usually um, evaluates, you know, that interaction, said, is there anything important that was said that I missed? Did I respond in a way that actually was helpful? I noticed, you know, there was a sigh of relief or a patient expressed some appreciation and gratitude or you could visibly tell that was meaningful to explore. Or somebody says, well, thanks for stopping by, you know, um, just to talk about it, you know, with you helps me, you know, now I can talk to my family members. Okay. So to be able to self-evaluate your work, because at some point you're leaving this training process and you're functioning independently as a practitioner, it's really a big part of that level too, getting to that point, you can do your own work of self-evaluating so, and so self-supporting. Chapl so chaplains who have achieved level two, or the advanced level as we you used to call it, actually, when they're back in practice, will sit down and write a verbatim and then review their own work. They may do that. I wish they would all do that after they're out of the <laughs> okay. training program. Oh, I see. Okay. I, I think is, they're is, not doing that consistently. Oh, okay. <laughs> but is, Often, that, is that the idea, though? That would be an, uh, the ideal that at least occasionally you they would do, do it, okay. or they would seek peer support. Often our students will like this um, program because there is a p strong peer component in there. Um, now near the end of the unit right now that the students I have, five of them, they're saying, well, what will I do without this process, you know, when for emotional support, because often, of course, encountering these uh, existential tensions, as I would say in people's life, you know, have an emotional toll. So there's a great need for support, but there's also a great need for reflecting on, you know, what went well here? I felt like, you know, this was kind of a dead silence when we never got anywhere. Who can I talk about this and keep on learning with, you know, so... Do, you, do your cohorts tend to form long-lasting peer mentoring arrangements or is that a thing that... Some, some do, but they ask about it and I have offered, you know, to provide in our department, you know, certainly a space and possibly a time for them to come back. My expectation at this point is that I can't take that responsibility on for them. They are preparing and are board certified chaplains, so they have 
to take the initiative to create an environment where they keep on getting feedback from peers and offer feedback to others. So basically, develop professional practice. Okay. I would offer to be part of that if I'm invited, but I'm not going to organize it for them because <laughs> they're not in the program anymore. Right, right, right. And now I'm relieved well, of that responsibility. It seems like it would be a very intimate kind of experience for a relatively extended period of time. I, mean, I can imagine that these must create some long-lasting friendships that you know, maybe would... It, it does for some people stay in touch, okay. especially if they're in the same area. Uh, okay. I would encourage and foster it, but yeah. as you may know from other fields of practice, you know, once you're done, you have your degree to be faithful to this reflective process is difficult. And some sure. of it has to do with the nature of the demands and yeah. the work. Um, I would encourage you to take this time aside also for, I mean, it's the best part of self-care, so to speak, and um, staying sharp and renewed and energized in your own practice if you are with colleagues. So you did this experience at Stanford, and this is what you said was kind of the triggering point for you to say, I, I do in fact want to be ordained. I want to be ordained. I want to be in ministry. I can see myself. I really very much felt affirmed in in my sense of being able to make a difference in people's lives. So it's kind okay. of a, a confidence builder, but, a, but an affirmation of... Um, that sense of calling. There, there's a need out there, and there's a hunger for people to have meaningful relations, and relationships, and need for support during distressing times. And if I could help with that, that essentially became my calling. And was the attraction immediately to a hospital-based practice uh, or, or ministry, or, 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 or were you thinking I'll, I'll, I'll do a church and then I'll, I'll do some of that as well? I think it was immediately. Um, to this clinical setting as well as the education. Okay. However, as uh, we continue kind of on my vocational journey, I, um, to get ordained, there are certain requirements in my denomination, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, for good reasons. Uh, since a call, you know, affirmed by a church and leading towards ordination is a call to what's called the Ministry of Word and Sacrament which means preaching um, the gospel in the Christian tradition and also administering the sacraments of um, baptism and communion, which typically happens in a congregational setting. Okay. So chaplaincy, like military chaplaincy, hospital chaplaincy, prison ministry, is what's called in many denominations specialized ministry. So chaplains typically need to get endorsement from their faith group or denomination that they have the authority to function as clergy, sometimes as lay ministers in this particular ministry. I wanted to pursue this specialty. However, to get ordained, I was required to spend at least three years in a congregational setting and receive a call from a congregation, which is the prerequisite to get ordained. What does it mean to receive a call from a congregation? To receive a call from in, in the Lutheran Church as well as other denominations, I can't list them all, you need to have a call to ministry, typically from a congregation, from a church that calls you as their pastor. Then you get ordained. You don't get ordained by finishing your degree. Some denominations, that may be the case. You have your degree, now you're ordainable, now you apply for jobs, or you're waiting, negotiating with the church to call you as a pastor. In my tradition, as well as some others, you um, get your degree, 
then you let your bishop or your authority know you're ready for a call, they're involved in this discernment process where it may be a good fit, and a congregation decides to hire you. Now, um, if this is your first call to a parish ministry, you will get ordained, in my tradition, by the bishop in that congregation or your home congregation, and then you will be installed as their pastor. So, so there's no ordination yeah. without a call. Okay, so you have to convince, I'm assuming, convince this congregation to hire you, or is it the bishop, bishop in your case, that kind of helps vari- make that happen? The create variations among different Christian denominations. As okay. many folks know in the Catholic tradition, there's a lot of authority with the hierarchy with the bishop right. assigning people. I believe in the Methodist tradition, traditionally that was the case that um, you know, leadership of superintendent would decide where people go. In my tradition, the Lutheran churches, the, the role of the, the bishop in a particular area is to be somewhat like a matchmaker. The bishop knows the different congregations and ministry settings and the needs of that church and community, their strengths. Do you need a strong administrator as a pastor there because they got a lot of lay leadership who run a lot of ministry? Are there a lot of pastoral hurts in the community? So you need somebody who's good at pastoral care? Are they um, drawing a lot of energy from music and the liturgy? Is there a pastor who has that skill set? So I've always appreciated that uh, kind of the wisdom of the bishop and the larger church kind of progress a little bit. So there's a pre-selection process where the bishop will say, oh, I got several candidates in the pool there. I looked at their profiles. I know where the openings are. I think uh, I give this congregation these three candidates to consider. And then they kind of step back a little bit and the congregation goes through their own process and then may interview on the phone all three candidates, maybe invite two people like a job interview. And then at some point, deliberate, prayerfully discern who may be a, a good match, you know, and a pastor to partner with, you know, in the mission and ministry of their church. So you had, I assume, you went back to Pacific School and you finished out your degrees. You got your Master's of Divinity. After, yes, right. After. And, and then and what was your process from there towards uh, getting your call and your ordination? Good. Then after um, getting the decrees, I added a second decree in religion and society ethics, working with the professor Charles McCoy, which we talked about. So I wasn't done yet with the um, classwork, and that was a joint decree they offer, you know, by um, just adding another year, which was helpful, since I also was not ready for a parish call yet. But then a denominational requirement, the Lutheran Church, you know, as part of the expectation is that you do an internship, you know, in a congregation. And that was the time for me to consider leaving, you know, the barrier. I did have the sense, if I want to minister in this country, at some point you have to get out of Berkeley. (laughs) This is not the norm, you know, I needed to (laughs) expose myself to a a different subcontext. And um, at that time, which um, became very influential, you know, there were... The group of students who would go on internships in a room with a a big table and all the internship profiles of congregations were there. And I did remember there were lots of congregations in um, Northern California and the Pacific Northwest. And then there were two, one in Hawaii and one in Alaska. And those two, maybe the travel buck again, you know, got my particular attention. I wanted to kind of see another part of the country where I hadn't grown up in. But I decided, or I I thought, um, 
Hawaii is almost too nice of a place. I come from a working class background and I'd love to visit Hawaii and have done so and enjoyed it, but basically a whole year to spend in a place that um, draws on sunshine and vacationers kind of, it's, it's, it's almost too nice. So kind of my blue collar background kind of was drawn to a little bit the more nitty gritty of Alaska and the climate being different there and a different environment that certainly was adventurous in its own way, but maybe a little bit closer to home and real people and work situations and people living, you know, in sometimes harsh conditions. So yeah. no surprise, I was the only one who wanted to go to Alaska and I got that um, opportunity and this turned out to be, you know, a very, very meaningful year and um, serving and learning, you know, in this congregation. That Okay. ultimately led after I returned and did more CPE in, in a different setting. Um, uh, later led, you know, me having a parish call in Alaska and spending um, about another 14 years there in ministry. Oh. Okay, so you did, you did your internship in Alaska and then you came back? I came back for personal reasons at the time, some relationship I tried to save, which ultimately um, did not work. Um, but that took me a little bit on a, on a spin vocationally and I at that point in the Bay Area decided to go back to clinical pastoral education and get a maybe a third unit of training, maybe that at le advanced level. Kind of, I was a little disoriented about what to do next with the relationship changing and not having a clear sense and not feeling ready for a parish call. So I had experienced this educational program as a very healing place and nourishing, you know, because of the constant action and reflection. And it was very meaningful for me yet to go to another different culture in the Southwest. I ended up in Albuquerque. Yeah. A very different population there, um, enjoyed it greatly and then continued actually with a second year residency, a full year of um, CPE in, uh, at Emory in Atlanta, um, yeah. Georgia. So, okay. so that was a big long transition period already with the goal to, um, um, the, the emerging goal to become actually a pastoral educator and what's called a CPE, clinical pastoral education supervisor. Okay, so what level of education did you get to while you were in Albuquerque, and then were you at that point the, had you achieved the supervisor level, or was that only after you went to Emory? That was that was much later. Okay. So I probably had in Albuquerque did another basic unit that was in a different context, a new hospital, large Hispanic, also Native American population. So. CPE really um, takes its learning from what's um, really the environment, the particular situation. The mantra is, you know, let your, let your patients teach you. What's your patient teaching you? You know, the questions arising out, out of each context or encounter, you know, become, you know, your, your learning and you set your own goals while there is some curriculum built. But you kind of don't know what you're learning until you're stepping into situations that you want to learn about. So for me, you know, um, dealing with Albuquerque had a lot of gang violence at that time. So being on call, being in DED, dealing with shootings and with stabbings and having large Hispanic families often there, uh, dealing with kind of different psychosocial contexts. You know, in that context, I could learn something about it because I was kind of called in or thrown into those situations. Yeah. Then I went, as I mentioned, to, for a whole year because I really uh, fell in love with this training method. 
and, and went to, to Atlanta, Georgia, again, a very different cross-cultural setting, which I'm also passionate about, being from another country and uh, fully embracing the diversity of um, America, living in Berkeley and Alaska and New Mexico and then in the South, you know, really of all places, of and ending here. up in New England yeah. of all places. Right. <laughs> so, so, so seeing a lot and, and kind of um, being energized by that. Yeah. I did... I did go yeah. to um, Emory in Atlanta out of all places because at that time they offered for the first time a CPE residency, a full year, four units of training in business and industrial chaplaincy. Right. That connected with my interest in business ethics and corporate culture and my working class background, ministering to people you know, at work where many of us spent most of our waking lives. And I'd learned about this new program there that was actually attached with Emory and the hospitals, but also was in the community with the business. So I didn't have any other plans. I was without the relationship I had nursed for some time. I could move anywhere in the country, and this was um, of interest, and I could go. And if that program would have been in Boston or in Seattle or in Minneapolis, I would have gone there because of that opportunity to do this training in, in a workplace setting. Now, this is really an interesting uh, idea. I, I was not aware of such a program. I, I've been aware, as, as we talked about, about CPE for some time, and I've always associated it with a hospital healthcare setting. Chap uh, healthcare, healthcare settings, setting. yes. But I, I, you know, as you know, I'm a retired army officer, and I, and I had an opportunity to work with chaplains throughout my whole career, mm -hmm. um, and, and not just in healthcare settings, but in you know, in every in every kind of unit that I was ever in, from combat units to training units. There's always a chaplain there, and so they definitely. I mean, the army embraced that idea of a workplace. Uh, a role for a chaplain as in in the workplace, right. but and it's not a it's not a thing I'm familiar with in the civilian civilian setting. and business settings. Right. Well, maybe here at the universities, I I don't know if they have a chaplain here. There's campus ministry, you yeah, know, there are so. campus chaplains. Mm -hmm. We do have a whole team yeah. of those, you know. I'm not saying they shouldn't be. I'm just no just right, but uh, that would be another setting, you know, yeah. where um, sometimes a co college chaplain, you know, where yeah. folks know, oh, there are chaplains. Prison is another area, but yes. Uh, business chaplains are not very well known. Also, there is a um, National Institute for Business Industrial Chaplains. There are various groups that are affiliated. There are some training programs. I've lost a little bit touch with those organizations since I ended up back in healthcare. But that was very fascinating at the time. And I'll What kind of issues did you work with in this workplace version of chaplaincy as opposed to healthcare? Good. Well, I'll, I'll step back a little and tell you a little bit about the context okay. there. This okay. company there, um, Allied Holdings at the time, or Allied Systems, was and still is a car hauling business that had been established more than 60, 70 years ago by a strong Baptist family in the South and had grown to a large company with... Um, um, Terminals, you know, where uh, new cars would be loaded from railheads or from ports onto these trucks that deliver cars to dealerships. That was their business, you know, not healthcare related, you know, kind of a subspecialties. You see them on the road, but 
In that company, they were very dedicated Baptists, you know, their faith tradition, and wanted to take good care of their employees. So over the years, they had ministers in the community reach out to provide emotional, spiritual support to their employees. And at some point, they decided we were growing. We need also professionally trained chaplains. And later on, we, they decided if we need trained chaplains for workplace ministry, we also want to train them and they contacted Emory as I understand it and for several years ran this training program where ministry students, you know, future um, workplace chaplains could spend a whole year there. So this was set up where I spent half a year at their um, offices, kind of home offices with the management, kind of white collar people, you know, from the top executives, you know, to middle management and people doing paperwork and the other half of that time, the second six months there, we're at a terminal in Hapewell, you know, just near the Atlanta airport where blue-collar folks would essentially from a Ford plant pick up cars and put them on these trailers, you know, of these rigs and then would drive all over the country or the region, I should say, to bring them to dealerships. So I remember, uh, I mean, the difference, difference is obviously people are not necessarily sick. You know, some people right. deal with healthcare issues, you know, or mental sure. health issues in their family at home. But a lot of the work as a chaplain, as I walked from cubicle to cubicle and office to office checking in with people, and then also I rode along, you know, with the blue collar workers. It's about um, anything related to their work life, the work stresses. I mean, work takes up a big part of our lives. Your right. life, you know, right. there's stuff going on, exciting things. Some things are frustrating, you know. Um, so just to learn about that as a student um, was very meaningful, but also, um, again, to journey with people and give them a space to reflect, you know, what's my experience like, you know. Um, being in this company, having done this work, uh, maybe wanting to advance myself, some decision-making, dealing with, let's say, at the office with office, uh, office dynamics, did a little study there kind of to um, learn about do kind of people's family dynamics sometimes play themselves out in the work setting. So I had one department there where I kind of interviewed folks and did kind of a family systems theory, a birth order and their family of origin and then see, you know, how are they functioning here with each other. And it was amazing to see some of the parallels there. So they were living out there. Living their, out, their, you know, their some their of their core relationships, relationships and their humanness. <laughs> like there was a, kind of a core leader who was a caretaker and took on a lot of projects and also the emotional leads of people. How did that impact maybe their performance, you know? Did people who were somewhat needy maybe be drawn to um, this particular department because their leader actually, you know, that's uh, that's what he did, you know, yeah, at, at home, you know, was a caring human okay. being and how did that impact uh -huh. um, uh -huh. the dynamics there? So there was kind of like a little mini uh, research project or a study, so to speak, kind of a case study, I would say. But just the work-life stresses or um, work-life balance, you know, I have elder care, I have my kids, you know, just to drop them off. Now I deal with that myself, you know, having children, performance issues, any kind of workplace stresses, and then just managing, you know, the demands at home. And, and, of course, personal issues over and over again, you know, marriage counseling, you know, distress with, worry about teenage children. Um, elder care issues. 
one of the ways that the army uses its chaplains in the mm -hmm. kind of in the mode that you're talking about is is like that. And one of the expectations is the chaplain feeds back kind of a organizational morale measure to the leadership. Is, was that an expectation in that environment? Were, were you kind of expected to come back and say, hey, this is kind of where the morale of the organization is, or these are the concerns? Was there any kind of, were you expected to feed, provide that feedback, or were you just out there doing your, your, doing, doing your mission? It's, it's more of the latter in the sense you're doing your mission. I mean, the leadership clearly understood a chaplain can only function effectively if it's confidential. You know, if any employee, you know, would think, you know, oh, this is going back to my boss, you know, right. I've um, share about some of my worries or fears or dissatisfaction here, that, that's not going to work. You're undermining your, your work, you know, and your own role in the organization. G generically, you know, would we talk about what we observed and what we uh, see um, with um, certainly the leader of our department, our supervisor, yes, you know, I mean, the lead chaplain was aware, you know, what people are worried about, some stresses in this or that department because of tensions. Okay. How he would handle that, you know, would he give a general report, you know, we got some opportunities to overall impact morale, I think that that would be a responsible thing to do. And in a healthcare setting right now, I mean, chaplains certainly function also um, as a staff support. We do have an employee assistance program. We have a live well, work well program. But mm -hmm. many of the employees also feel comfortable talking to a colleague or the staff chaplain following some um, critical incidents, you know, um, particular losses and hurts, you know, traumatic events. And um, instead of going sometimes to an office, you know, where you sit down with a clinical mental health counselor, you know, um, it may be easier to, to talk to a colleague you work side by side with who also is your chaplain just say, you know, this was very hard, you know, to be last night with that family when they lost their child. So there's an element of peer support, but chaplains um, take on, on that role. Sometimes now I may say, go back, you know, we had some situations where I got called in, in a, that's in a healthcare setting. Um, folks were impacted by patients who, um, because of medication issues, ended up, you know, basically choking a staff and hitting somebody. That was fairly traumatic for two of the staff, and they ended up kind of depriving the situation, providing emotional support, reflect a little bit of what are the things that may have been triggered while they, they were in the situation and also think through well organizationally could we put a process in place that automatically you know if something like this happens we we do a debriefing just like um, emergency responders or the military I imagine do. Sure. So a chaplain would have a role there in, in, in a healthcare setting and there in this business you know they um, the chaplains had become part of the culture. People trusted, um, whether they were very religious it's in the South, you know, some more religious environment. Yeah. Uh, the role of the minister has a certain esteem there, you know, in a kind of more evangelical um, Christian environment. But nevertheless, you know, people that were not of a particular faith background really trusted, you know, that the leadership, you know, cares enough, you know, to have somebody um, employed, you know, to basically reach out and check in with people how they're doing. So just imagine yourself here, there's this row of um, offices here. If you had a chaplain here for the staff to come around, you know, every couple weeks or so and say, hey, Mark, how's your project going, you know, what's going well, what kind of, what fuels your passion, you know, or any frustrations you're dealing with? Yeah. 
I, I, that, could mean, that could mean Absolutely. a lot. It's a great value, and then you get to debrief a little bit, and if the relationship is there and something else is happening in your life, whether it's at work or at home, and to know that person say, you know, guess what, you know, we got something going on at home, I worry about that. That may be the person to sit down with over a cup of coffee. And that's just part of life, you know, because life happens, you know, right. and to have somebody to intentionally journey with you and be available to you. I found that very meaningful, you know, being in this role and being trusted by people as yeah. they share what's going on, you know, in their heart and sometimes in their guts or how their spirit is impacted. Yeah. So you spent a year at Emory doing right. uh, uh, doing a, a full year, four, you said four units of, of CPE. Yep. Does that mean you were a... a does that mean that at that point you were officially a CPE supervisor? No, still not. No, that, that's separate. It was a second-year residency with a specialty in workplace ministry. Okay. At that point, I would have been eligible to become a board-certified chaplain. However, I decided or I was encouraged and welcomed, encouraged to apply for a supervisory education position, which is that third level of um, CPE programs where then you train to become an educator and that's typically a multi-year pro process where under supervision you learn how to s supervise, supervise students and I um, had connections because I'd spent time in Albuquerque at Presbyterian Hospital. They just started that training program. They informed me um, that it was happening and encouraged me to apply because we had the relationship. They know I love that work and maybe they saw the potential in me. So I didn't have any other plans of what to do after that year. So I went back to Albuquerque, started that process for a year and a half. Okay. And then actually I ran into the denominational requirement of needing to be ordained to continue in this educational process. And the requirement, you know, was to go into a parish and serve a parish for three years. I had the permission of my bishop, you know, to go that supervisory route. But then ultimately, when an official vote was taken about waiving that requirement that was denied, I had to abandon the process and then said, you know, okay, didn't like it at the time, you know, sure. because I was on my path, you know, and I had invested in a year and a half, but if that's what it's going to be, then I'll go back to Alaska where I was assigned as a path, uh, as a so you received uh, a clergy, and then I um, pursued and uh, received the call, and I said, I'm not just fulfilling a three-year requirement. I will take this seriously, whatever is beneficial for that congregation, and maybe for my ministry I will do, and maybe later I'll return to supervisory education. Can you, can you, we, I meant to ask you this earlier, so can you talk a little bit about the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America and how you chose that particular denomination? Because I'm imagining you, you didn't grow up uh, in that denomination. Yeah, so... It's an associated with America. Certainly not associated <laughs> with America. As I mentioned earlier, you know, in Germany, certainly at the time, the two big faith groups essentially were Catholic and Protestant or Evangelical, um, as it's called there. Okay. And uh, there's some variations in, in different German regions. Some are identified clearly as Lutheran Protestant and others as uh, Reformed tradition. Those are theological nuances. But when I came to the U.S., you know, now there were all these other Protestant denominations. So this is typically America. You got a small grass board. You got options, right, you know. Right. This is about freedom. So you got the Presbyterians and the Methodists and the UCC and other groups that I've never heard about. But... Right. 
ultimately for me, uh, theologically, but also culturally, Lutheran was close to home. I mean, sure. I had grown up in Germany, you know, Luther's country where the Reformation started. Um, personally, when I was younger, um, I grew up in West Germany. My family originally was from East Germany. When we would travel to see my family across the, at that point, Iron Curtain, you know, to East Germany, we would drive by the Wartburg, which is a place Martin Luther, you know, hid during the time of Reformation. There's a lot of cultural history and identification, you know, with Lutheranism as the founder of that particular church, but also the Reformation. So, so for me, even these memories, you know, of having that castle up there, Wartburg on the on the mountain hill as a, as a child, and having Luther's connection, and me being so far away from home and my culture and my language and my identity, that meant a lot. That was the closest to home, literally. But then also theologically, there is a strong emphasis, you know, beginning with Luther on grace, the foundation of a kind of a religious experience rather than a works righteousness. So for me, that countered maybe also my own uh, kind of German perfectionism at the time. And, you know, the harder you work, the better you're off. And the more you do and kind of this, this achievement driven was counterbalanced, you know, by messages of understanding that that is strongly emphasized in many Protestant churches, certainly in Lutheranism, you know, that we, we live by God's grace. And that was spiritually very nourishing and provided me with much more kind of balance in my life counterbalancing a little bit that drive and perfectionism which is good and gets you gets you that far but it also can be sapping your energy and become a detriment so there that theological foundation was very meaningful and I would say that's been a good match for me and hopefully I've contributed you know to the church and that that call okay so you received your call from our Savior's Lutheran Church in Nome? In Nome, Alaska, of all places, people were thinking, Frank, you are crazy. You're still single at that time. You know, I was in my early 30s, and what what are you doing to go up off the road system in to Nome, Alaska, you know, for personal reasons? But I was very interested at that time, first of all, to, to serve the church, you know, that I had affiliated with and to fulfill the requirement and then some. And again, to do so in a in a setting that was different and kind of um, I, I like new things a little bit the adventurous spirit and as I you asked earlier about the sense of call the bishop is a big part in that and at that time there were about nine congregations in Alaska that only has about thirty Lutheran congregations were open and the bishop said Frank you have done all this clinical pastoral education. In um, hospital settings, you've been around trauma a lot. You know, you have uh, had a lot of reflection and this training. In this congregation or in this setting and the fringes, you know, of the Bering Sea and also in this native community, there's a lot of trauma. There's a lot of abuse issues. There's a lot of alcoholism. There are a lot of accidents. There are a lot of premature deaths. There's a lot of suicide like many of the native communities, whether it's on reservations here in the so-called lower 48, as well as up there. So he really had some wisdom and said, knowing also, you know, the, the tension and difficulties, you know, that had impacted previous pastors who often didn't stay much longer than three, four years, 
because the high burnout rate in this kind of environment was fairly because tense. of those kind of stressful the co common the yeah common stressors of kind of this web of alcoholism impacting almost every family this being the norm you know underlying you know abuse issues domestic violence high rate of accidents to suicides again so he said frank you probably can because of that experience you have and maybe also the network of uh, mentors and colleagues in this field it may be easier for you to sustain yourself in there and you love pastoral care and counseling and being with people and then he said essentially a pastor up there functions functions like a community chaplain you know it's Yes, Is that different than, say, well, maybe in a more in a suburban church? You know, the worship leadership, good preaching. You yeah. know, um, working with the youth group. You know, maybe creative worship services. Uh, visiting certainly with elders and the shut-ins in the community, ed Christian education, a Bible study. I mean, those are certainly things you would expect to be within the realm of responsibilities of a pastor. But as I mentioned earlier, you know, depending on the context, you know, these needs shift. Right. So in that congregation, they had a very um, traditional set worship style. I didn't need to be very creative and... Uh, messing around with the pews and create new experiences, but I was very interested in walking with the people and learning about what they do in the community and some of the hardships. Yeah. So um, probably a lot more of my time was spending counseling there and supporting people with these hurts and afflictions you know, that they were dealing with. I, in that context, probably had more funerals than certainly in a suburban church with young families, okay. including um, younger people because of some of the suicides, um, accidents that were happening there. So, so that requires a certain skill set that with the bishop's wisdom he imagined I, I may be a good match in that environment. And I, I give him a lot of thanks and kudos and say yes. Um, he knew that the CPE and the, the learning that had taken place as well as those relationships really helped sustain me there. You referred to the church as multicultural. What, what did you mean by that? What I really mean by that is that for Lutheran church, I mean Lutherans are typically um, of German or Scandinavian descent in most parts of the country, especially in the Midwest, this congregation was predominantly Inupiaq Eskimo. So Alaska Native people in this part, Eskimo, this, uh, the term self-refer in Inupiaq was the particular tribe. So I would say two-thirds, three-quarters of the congregation were Alaska Native or Inupiaq Eskimo, and the other members of the church, either long-term Caucasians who had settled there some generations ago, two, three generations, and also a group of, let's say, in typically white or at least non-native um, professionals who had moved their teachers, doctors, administrators who had some of the higher paying jobs in town and had moved there, sometimes stayed you know, for decades, sometimes stayed a few years and then moved on. So it was fairly diverse for a Lutheran church with particularly uh, emphasis on native ministry, Alaska native ministry. What was unique about native Alaskan ministry? Versus, I mean, you've, at that point, you'd been to a number of different parts of the United States. So, what was especially different about ministering to the Native American population? Yeah. 
you talked about. Yeah, I'll have to think about it. I mean, at that point, that was my first call into a parish. So in, in some ways, I can't compare to okay. being a pastor in, let's say, a suburban church or a rural congregation. But um, certainly looking back, I would say that the loss of the cultural identity and how that impacted the community was tremendous. A white impact was um, around the turn of the 19th century, including, you know, the arrival of missionaries. Um, people embraced, you know, the Christian faith. Certainly the elders, you know, were the strong support of the church, and yet also native traditions had been eradicated sometimes by those missionaries. For example, native dances were seen as something shamanic. So now, <clears throat> 100, over 100 years ago, you know, Protestant Christians don't do that. So, so certainly the church had its impact on native culture, but also the church provided a safe haven from some of the acculturation and the many psychosocial issues, especially, again, the alcoholism. Norm is a town, you know, the, the joke there always was, has as many bars as it has churches. And they've been at odds with each other ever since. So um, people will want to live a somewhat healthy lifestyle, will want to get away from the bars and everything and ill that is associated with it, you know, would often find a home within some of the churches in that community. There was a Methodist church, a Baptist church, there were others. But the Lutheran church was fairly prominent and big because, you know, Lutheran missionaries had come to the villages in that area. So we had a the largest sanctuary there. And the sanctuary, huh, really maybe living up to its term, was a sanctuary on some of the ills of life. It was a safe haven and a space where people would come and be comforted in their, in their grief especially. Okay. And what was very different, to come back to your question, is that um, hymn singing was almost sacramental there church in partnership with rural congregations would have conferences in the spring and in the fall where members from these churches would come together and sometimes for many hours in the evenings take turns singing hymns dedicating those hymns let's say to elders or to people who have passed away or dedicating this hymn blessed assurance or amazing grace some of these older gospel hymns to, to families who were mourning and were grieving. So what was different is um, dealing with grief, loss and grief and with mourning and walking with people with trauma or being re-traumatized re or accumulated grief. You know, that was far more intense there than I would think of in a typical congregation that is more programmatic and does a lot of other things. What would you and say? The, and, and I would, would add some of the tensions because of the clash of cultures, you know, even dealing with the leaderships. You've got highly educated white professionals, you know, who have prominent positions. They have a certain idea about how things, you know, are done somewhere else and how they are efficient and efficiency, you know, and that's not necessarily a cultural value. Relationships count more and authorities are different. So to, having to navigate, you know, these different cultures and be a minister to both and yet hold us together and was a challenge, I would say, and, and, and also create a learning opportunity. What would you say were the biggest lessons that you took from that experience that affect your practice today? 
there's two things. I mentioned earlier that initially I wasn't too enthused about having to interrupt my process to become an educator going into the specialized ministry. And yet the requirement of the church, you know, required of me to be a general practitioner. If I'm a chaplain or, let's say, a CPE supervisor, I can use a medical term, I'm kind of a specialist, you know, whereas a pastor of a church is like a primary care physician. You do it all where the people live, you're with them, you get exposed to a variety of things. So for me to have had that experience and understand, at least from my experience, what congregational life is like, what are some of the the hopes and the hurts of the people and what how they are drawn into community and what they need from a church and what frustrates them being a church has been very influential because now I'm an educator with uh, ministry students, some of them who will become chaplains, but many who do a summer and internship who will end up being parish pastors. So kind of I, 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 at least from my experience, I know what it was like for me and I can make reference to those experiences educating students who prepare for parish ministries. In our area, since I'm up at Dartmouth uh, Hitchcock Medical Center, in rural areas where some of the isolation being far away from um, metro areas um, certainly has some parallels to being in Alaska. Other lessons learned, you know, from that particular experience is that it certainly stressed the value of thinking in systems and trying to look at the whole community while providing care for individuals. So certainly sharpened my sense to look at some of the patterns, what is going on in people's lives and how is that connected with, let's say, the economics of a place or with cultural issues, certainly the disparity, uh, race issues, disparity between the rich and the poor, educational gap. And I need to say I was surprised after I left Alaska when I came to the Northeast here to beautiful New England with the white steeple churches and the farms and the, the hills and the forests. And it doesn't hit you in your, the face as much as it does in some urban areas or maybe the poverty issues in Alaska in a native community or if you were to drive on a reservation. You'll have to take a little closer, but it seemed to me there were actually a lot of parallels to what I had experienced and seen up there. I found myself, or still find myself, wondering like so many uh, these days, where's the middle class? You got the highly educated professional people who are still doing okay and trying to hang on to some of the privileges that come with education and the economic security, although that's not the case anymore. It was in the last generation, but I'm reminded of a lot of people who may be descendants of the French-Canadian immigrants who came when the cotton mills, you know, like 100 years ago up to 50 years ago were still strong, and then they vanished in the 70s. And there's certain issues on lifestyle um, things, including the alcoholism, you know, abuse issues that very much remind me of some of the dynamics I saw up there in the native community. There they were all together in this town and they were very visible in the streets. Now I get a sense of that, you know, as I'm listening to people who often live with a sense of despair, you know, and hopelessness. That may look a little bit differently, but there are parallels there. Kind of the multi-generational, you know, sense of loss and we're never going to get ahead and the combination of mental health issues and substance abuse issues and domestic violence and abuse issues that impact a fairly large segment of our population. 
that if you're just driving around here on a vacation, you don't see. But if you're in a medical center and you watch people coming in and see the multitude of their comorbidities and the complexity of their, their life and how it impacts, you know, the, their health, that was really a takeaway and yet also a surprise when I came here that there actually may be more similarities than, than differences. So how long were you a pastor? In Ome? In, at, at Saviors. At Our Saviors at Lutheran Saviors. Church. I was a little over six years. Okay. And then did you go directly from, from there to Anchorage to Providence, Alaska Medical Center? Right. And I'll give you a little background how that came about. At this uh, time, during that fifth or sixth year, I had actually gotten, uh, found my wife up in Nome, Alaska, of all places, mm. and had gotten married. My wife's originally from Maine, which already gives you a hint of why we're in the Northeast, or part of the reason why we're here. And we had our first child born very prematurely. Uh, my wife went into um, labor during her six months of 24 weeks of pregnancy in, in Nome, and we were flown to Anchorage, ended up at Providence, the hospital. They essentially saved the life of our little daughter, Sophia, when she was born prematurely and ended up 100 days in a neonatal intensive care oh, wow. unit. So we got exposed to Anchorage, but also because of her occupational therapy needs after she was discharged, we went back to Nome for another year. They provided services by flying people in from the big city, you know, kind of once a month. But we were starting to look maybe, you know, our daughter will need more continuous services that only could be provided in a in a bigger city with healthcare resources. And at that time, then um, providentially, I would say um, we learned that at Providence Alaska Medical Center, they were looking for a manager of their spiritual care department and wanted to develop a CPE program while uh, I had reconnected with Stanford and was becoming a CPE supervisor and pastoral educator. So they had a need for wanting to establish a program to improve the quality of their chaplaincy services. I was in-state, but up in Nome, Alaska, wanting to become a supervisor. So that seemed to be a good match and ultimately um, resulted in my hire and serving there also over six years developing a CPE program and being back in a healthcare setting and then also finishing my education and that third level or supervisory education okay. that allows me now to um, lead CPE programs and supervise students. You went to Providence and you established the uh, CPE program there in 1999 and yeah. then it looks like you achieved accreditation as a freestanding CPE training center, so you were independent of Stanford in about 2010? Right. I re was not able to do that, even, you know, to sustain myself and know him without, um, I should mention, you know, George Fitzgerald there was um, a, a main mentor of mine who took me on as a student huh, several thousand miles away being in Stanford, California, and me being up in Nome, Alaska, so I would go down for supervision on a regular basis, and then later on helped establish what's called a satellite center at Providence Alaska Medical Center in Anchorage. And yes, um, after a few years of work and putting a program in place, getting myself through the process, we were able to accredit a freestanding center that's, to my knowledge, still functioning up there and provides, you know, at least one site where people can train, you know, for chaplaincy or chaplaincy-related ministry. Wow, that's a neat accomplishment. In 2011, you came to Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. Were you hired directly into your current role as the director? or no? no, at that time, 
Patrick McCoy was the director of the chaplaincy services. He um, retired a little over a year ago, and then I assumed promoted to take on that position, which is similar now to the role you know I had in Alaska. Yet it was actually very helpful, you know, to kind of step out of that leadership role for at least three years and function as a staff chaplain and also do the supervision of the students. Okay. It was a little bit of a reprieve from the headaches that come with administration management, right, and right. management, <laughs> and now I'm back at it. And of course, uh -huh. there are also opportunities um, that come with that to kind of create a vision for the department and align oneself with organizational goals and kind of get the creative juices flowing, you know, being in that role. Also, I felt like I was part of that also in my supervisory role. So what <coughs> made you decide to make the jump from Alaska to New Hampshire? So your wife's from Maine. But well, that was a big motivator. Once we uh, decided to leave Alaska, we were looking at seeing what were there any openings, you know, near uh, in New England, essentially, to be closer to family. At that point, we had a second um, daughter, two children, you know, two girls, um, Sophia, who I mentioned, and Isabel. And I'm so far away from my family in Germany. Being in Alaska in the summer, there are direct flights, but otherwise it takes 24 hours to get there. Just having two professional parents, not having any support, not uh, having the girls know their grandparents. So once we left Alaska, it was clear we wanted to look in the Northeast, which again was a new environment for me, as you have heard. You know, I like kind of doing new things, but it also was important for me now that we, I and we had children to create a permanent environment for them. That's meaningful to me, having grown up in Germany, my parents still live in the house where I grew up. I, when I go home, I know where to go. And I want something like that for the children. And while we laughed, uh, loved and then left Alaska, you know, um, I, I sure would hope that this is the place, you know, that they will call home, that is a good home for them, but also will call home later on in life. And it puts us closer, you know, to family, especially my mother-in-law who sometimes comes over and helps or just enjoys being with the girls. And it's closer to home for me, you know, a flight from Boston to Frankfurt is much easier, especially anticipating maybe elder care, health care needs. I'm an only child. That's important to me that I could fly out in the evening and be there in the morning in case that's necessary. Knock on wood, it's not the case yet, but right. that may come. So that figured in. Great. And the opportunity to end up with Dartmouth-Hitchcock was particularly of interest because it is an academic teaching hospital. I was in a faith-based hospital, a Catholic hospital, which has its advantages if you're in spiritual care. Right. Obviously, you know, there's strong support for kind of from a faith-based perspective. People in leadership understand the value of spiritual care. I, uh, being also somewhat an intellectual, also very drawn to the academic side, and this is something I'm still learning about and seeing how in a teaching hospital we can integrate spiritual care even more so maybe with research, which is a growing area in our field. And I, I hope or certainly will be open to partnering with others to see um, if there's value in that to foster multidisciplinary care and integrate spiritual care, maybe even in some research. What is the mission of the chaplaincy department at Dartmouth-Hitchcock? Well, I would say that the mission um, for us is certainly to provide good, solid, uh, emotional, spiritual support to our patients and their families and also to our staff, patients okay. and families when they're with us. 
we most recently we got kind of uh, restructured or reorganized and now report to um, the Office of Patient Experience, which I think is a very wise move in the sense of leadership recognizing that the key people who are addressing emotional and spiritual needs, the chaplaincy team, actually can have, and that's well demonstrated in some research, you know, the overall patient experience because we listen to know to people what it's like, you know, to be in the hospital while everybody else needs to figure out what to do to get them better and help them. Our our mission is certainly, you know, to to have a positive impact on patients and their experience in the hospital, not just in the sense of them being satisfied with our services, although that's great, but also, you know, to um, really help them navigating healthcare, to um, maybe learn from their experience, to have an overall really impact on their well-being. The core emotional and spiritual need, you know, taps into um, a sense of hope is one of the key tasks. Help people, you know, sometimes and with their values with respect to decision-making. We focus on helping um, people with the relationships and the relational aspects, you know, of crisis in a family and people having different feelings and fears about, you know, an illness and the impact on the family. And still, of course, at the core, the journeying with that we talked about while um, patients and families are entrusted into our care. We walk with them. And the task and opportunity for chaplains is to actually take the time to sit with somebody and reflect on their experiences or sometimes sit in silence, you know, to be with them while, while they're hurting, essentially, and wondering what the future will hold or what got me into this in the first place. Um, other staff seem to have less and less time, you know, doctors consistently are dissatisfied with kind of losing that almost sacred patient-doctor relationship because of organizational administrative needs and missing that face-to-face -face, um, encounter. And, and, and chaplains, I think, can provide that. And I would say that's a big part of our mission to, huh, often staff say, to, to really keep the patient human. Because oh, sometimes okay. we get so distracted, you know, with particular aspects, this organ or this cell or this particular crisis or this bug, you know. And yes, doctors right. and nurses, of course, need to attend to that because that's having an impact on the whole person. But chaplains then kind of provide a kind of a big picture. You know, we don't know much about a particular illness and what it does to the body, you know, but we listen to what does it do to the spirit and how does it impact the whole family. So other staff members sometimes will comment that a chaplain's um, chart entry actually helped them to really see the whole person, and that can easily get lost, you know. Um. So you actually make entries into the, into the medical <coughs> Yes, um, typically professional chaplains would, would chart, you know, and that's sometimes more or less read, you know, by other professionals, certainly discharge planners, social workers, sometimes physicians and nurses will attend to that because that's of value to kind of see in the bigger picture what's what's going on. You know, somebody may disclose something with a chaplain that um, they may not as readily talk about, you know, with others. So Dartmouth-Hitchcock has the Geisel School of Medicine, the Dartmouth, Dartmouth School of Medicine in it. How does, and so you mentioned it's an academic medical center. So right, there, are, yeah, there yeah. are physicians being trained at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. How does that affect your role? How does that affect the mission of the chaplaincy? And what's your role uh, working with medical students and, and residents and so forth? Mm -hmm. 
This has kind of evolved just for me and I would say for our chaplaincy department over the last two years and has really been an added delight, you know, and particular interest of mine in my role as the director and also as a chaplain and an educator. Um, about two years ago, we did receive, uh, we applied and did receive a grant from the George Washington Institute for Spirituality and Health, Healthcare. Um, that's a group led by Christina Pochalski, you know, down at George Washington University. And um, this grant gave us some support and accountability with respect to leading or facilitating reflection rounds with medical students during their third year, one of the clerkships. So we had a physician, Tim um, Siegel, who was able to take this on as a surgeon, but also as a palliative care doctor. And um, he, an oncology nurse practitioner, and myself would co-facilitate usually two of us reflection rounds of medical students during their surgery clerkship. That's continued in some fashion, and we're looking at um, having that continue. It builds on other um, attempts to integrate more the humanities into medical schools. I think our medical school, as probably others in the country, are sensing you know, the human aspect, the personal touch is getting lost and the relational abilities maybe of future physicians would depend more and more on technology and data maybe getting lost and also physicians and future physicians may be less satisfied. So there is a need and there is an attempt, you know, to integrate the humanities into various aspects of their training. For example, an on-doctoring class, you know, that brings peer groups of medical students from the first year together to reflect on their sense of calling and maybe their mission and their values and their experiences with patients. So I have greatly enjoyed co-facilitating these reflection rounds because for the first time really I got to hear and listen to what it's like to be a medical student and those challenges are tremendous from the time management to dealing with the hierarchy of uh, the first patient encounters, dealing with uh, delivering bad news, encountering their own vulnerability and limits when it comes to death and dying. Maybe their own sense of calling and how their own spirit is impacted by being in this demanding role as a student and learning you know, to become a competent ph physician. And um, to have um, our skill set as pastoral educators valued, you know, we do a lot of reflection. Our training is based on experience-based learning. So to be welcomed and, and, and ask, you know, to help the medical students who kind of navigate that, that part of the education has been very, very meaningful. And I would hope, think so from the feedback of the students has been very beneficial. You supervise six chaplains and they have different religious affiliations. Is mm -hmm. this intentional? Very much intentional. Diversity is uh, very important in our training process as well as in any modern, you know, chaplaincy or spiritual care department. Um, I mean, it fosters, you know, um, learning overall. We do have two Catholic priests, two UCC ministers. That is more likely since we're in the Northeast and that's a stronger denomination. Uh, I happen to be Lutheran. We have a um, Catholic chaplain, UU. So there's some diversity. We have, do have a student who is Buddhist. We have had students, you know, who are Jewish. In a major metro area, you may also have a Muslim chaplain on staff in a larger hospital or in a system, or a, especially if the population, you know, 
Muslim popul uh, population is higher. So we're very open to that and encourage it, that kind of diversity. How specialized are your chaplains? Are you all generalists, all, all educators? Do you have subspecialties, sub-board board certifications? Well, they're all board-certified chaplains, primarily as generalists. So, mm -hmm. so certainly when hiring or when we are thinking about bringing a new chaplain on board, since we back each other up and support each other, we want to make sure that we can send a chaplain in every area of the hospital. So that, that's kind of the minimum expectation, you know, in almost every situation, whether it's working with little children or they're dying, you know, we want somebody to be comfortable. That, um, that we can do. We do have uh, uh, some specialties with respect to uh, next week we have a new uh, children's hospital chaplain coming on board who has extensive experience in working with pediatric uh, situations, children and their families. That is kind of a subspecialty. Um, the educators you're mentioning, I'm the only one right now who can educate staff. However, we since last year started training supervisors in training, so we're training future educators, and that will be their specialty, just like it is my specialty and my, my calling. Okay. There's a palliative care chaplain as well. That is a kind of a leading clinical area that is very welcoming in integrating chaplaincy into the core of their interdisciplinary work. Now there even is some attempt to offer specialization and certification for palliative care chaplains and I think nationwide curriculums are developed you know to address that particular need and that's something we want to look at too for future students since that's a growing field. Do you have lay volunteers that are affiliated with providing religious or spiritual support? Very and few. Is that run out of your office? <clears throat> in our office, we do have um, Eucharistic ministers of the Catholic tradition, so they support the priests in bringing Holy Communion to Catholic patients throughout the hospital. That's the only group. Okay. We have other hospitals. When I trained at Stanford, for example, they have large groups, probably several hundred volunteers, on, on, based on various denominations, also being in a very diverse area. They have a Hindu chaplaincy, they have a Muslim chaplaincy, they have an Episcopalian chaplaincy. So in addition to the generalist, professionally trained chaplain, they have volunteer groups who uh, visit and provide ministry to people based on their faith group and denomination. So that's possible, but I don't think we have that much of a need for that kind of ministry in our setting. What's unique about managing chaplains? What? You make me smile. What's unique about managing chaplains? I mean, chaplains, of course, are the delight to work with in the sense of having a, a strong dedication and the sense of calling. That's really as at, at the core, you know, of we're here to serve something larger than ourselves, however we understand that. So that, that dedication, you know, is an excellent resource. Chaplains bring that to any organization and certainly to their, their individual work. I hardly ever have to doubt that, that somebody is not motivated by something larger than self-interest, you know? And if we can help a whole organization in doing that and nourish that in others, I think that's a contribution that we can make in helping people connect, you know, with a true sense of calling and again, something larger of their self, however they understand it. Of course, that also for most chaplains is their primary commitment. So sometimes there is a tension or a challenge to um, 
work with organizational needs or sometimes the administrative or a business culture. Chaplains are typically motivated by high ideals and by social justice and kind of being prophets, you know, sometimes in their own way, in their own tradition, and that's an added value versus, you know, dealing with the ins and out of organizational life and large business structures and the bottom line figuring into decisions, that sometimes puts um, chaplains with their high idealism, sometimes me also at attention. So I can identify with my colleagues, but if you're in a management role, how to navigate that, I would say that may be a unique, unique challenge, you know, to align, you know, your team of chaplains with the organizational mission, which, of course, if we are here to care, do the best of our abilities for everybody and promote health, you know, would typically align also with the chaplain's vision. But the reality is of business decisions, you know, in organizational context, you know, that sometimes is tough for some chaplains, you know, to live with because it doesn't meet their ideal of justice. How do you evaluate the effectiveness of a chaplain? Well, that is a big theme in our field and uh, has come to the forefront, you know, more over the last 15, 20 years, I would say. In my previous setting, that was primarily done to um, patient feedback and evaluating oneself against peers all over the country with respect to patient satisfaction. In our current setting, we're not collecting that kind of data Primarily, I think, because it is a trivial, it's more a quantitative approach rather than uh, measuring the effectiveness of particular clinical interventions that lead to certain outcomes. There's a lot of work to be done in our field, and my hope would be also being in an academic teaching hospital that we contribute to that evidence, you know, through research in the years to come. No organization can do it on their own in this field, but for the last few years there are national conferences on research and chaplaincy. I would think, you know, we can uh, contribute to that. Uh, right now, I mean, we're certainly depending on the feedback directly, you know, from patients, often, you know, their stories, the value that's attributed by interdisciplinary staff. They have a good sense, you know, of what a chaplain does and how particular chaplains function and if they ask us to come, we know they trust us that we make a difference in people's lives. So that's fairly generic, but there's a lot of room for something more systemic that's certainly evidence-based. When we talked before, we talked about the future of spiritual care as the health system moves towards a population health model and reimbursement based on value. Mm -hmm. um, you had some interesting ideas about how spiritual care could be part of that movement. I was wondering if you could share a little bit of that some thoughts on that? Yes, one of the, the thoughts I have, and certainly people in the field have, is about how can we further integrate spiritual care in the whole spectrum of healthcare. We've done a good job and are traditionally based um, with an inpatient population in the hospital. However, you know, with movement towards uh, maintaining the health of populations on a larger scale, the question becomes for me, how can our chaplains, you know, also do work with and follow patients where they live, whether or not they're at the hospital or the rehab facility or a nursing home. So we're exploring with some of our students now if we can provide some of the continuity of emotional and spiritual care by chaplains, whether it starts at the hospital and follows into the community, or we have a student who resides in the community, knows people from that area. When they come to our hospital, this person sees that particular patient in the family. 
because if you have to retell your story you know to other caregivers and providers you are establishing some some depth then you go to another facility or sometimes even a different unit in the hospital in the past we would pass on these people to a different chaplain I would want to develop, explore, and maybe actually research, you know, some models and see if we can do this better. Imagine you or a family member were at our hospital, you end up spending a few weeks there, you connect with the chaplain. If that were a chaplain who actually also lives and maybe has another call, you know, in the community and you are able to stay in touch during a rehab process of somebody who was in an accident or a chronic health issues that you have to deal with with your teenager or your spouse. I would think there are some great benefits if you have made a good connection, you know, and that person stays with you. Again, journeys with you, not just these two weeks when you're in the hospital, but over a longer period of time. So how to develop that and navigate that? I mean, that's uh, right now we have more questions, you know, than answers and how to do that systematically. But that's something we're tapping into exploring. So let's close on this. Uh, I teach here in health management and policy. We're training young folks to become healthcare administrators. What is the most important thing that they should understand about the role of the chaplain and the chaplaincy uh, in a hospital or other healthcare organization? I feel really blessed that our leaders in our organization, who I know some of them um, closer than others, of course, have a very good grasp that chaplains are somebody who again journey with people do have a strong impact on the overall experience of a person while how they're cared for you know overall in the hospital i think ideally then a leader also whether they're religious or their faith or they have a sense of spirituality independent of that that they have a sense that chaplains also represent somewhat the spirit of the organization the chaplains in some ways, you know, embody you know, the mission and the values. That was especially strong when I worked, you know, in a Catholic healthcare faith-based setting where, you know, the mission and spiritual care is one on the same person. In an academic teaching hospital, you know, the values are somewhat different, you know, more scientific-based, and maybe spirituality doesn't come to the forefront right away, but... I think a leader sensing, you know, the opportunity a chaplain has to engage individual patients and their families kind of at their core existential needs, but also the core existential needs of the organization and the people who work there, and that there is great value in that. And there's some freedom with the chaplaincy role because we're less productivity-driven, you know, than others since we're not revenue-generating and we're not charging people, you know, for a, a prayer and a listening ear here, there, uh, I think effective leaders sense that and, and, and say, yes, this is of great value to our organization. And if they ask us, you know, to provide maybe some of the data and more details, I think that's okay too. And that's a challenge, you know, that I would as a manager or director of a department bring back to the team and say, yes, we want to be accountable and we want to demonstrate by patient stories and maybe systemically how we are making a difference. That is our task and I think we, we, we have the responsibility and communicate that better case by case, you know, one situation at a time, or maybe through research, you know, more systemically. Thank you so much for your time today. This has been really enlightening. It's been wonderful to revive my, uh, review my own um, 
kind of a vocational journey. It's been um, quite a few years and also an impetus, you know, to, to keep on learning and growing and, and, and serving. So thanks for uh, reflecting with on where I've been and how far I've come and the work that's still left to be done. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.